Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. This is Inspiring Women, and I am Lori McGraw. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Fatima Cody Stamford. She is an obesity medicine physician and scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. She is one of the most highly cited scientists in the field of obesity, highly decorated, many awards, author of two books, and she's also an extremely vocal advocate for women for patients for health equity. And I'm really delighted to be speaking with you today, Dr. Cody Stanford. Thank you. It's a delight to be here with you. Okay. So let's get going. And we always start inspiring women with what are you doing today, right now? And I know that you're probably on meeting number 87 of hundred, but what does day-to-day look like for you in your practice? Oh, that's very funny. Um, you're, you're right. I, I don't think I can give you a typical day. I'll just have to try to give you all of the things that are going on that I can remember at this very second. As an obesity medicine physician scientist, I do care for patients. Um, I do spend um, about 50%, according, at least on paper, of my time with patients um, with obesity that range in age from two to 90. Um, as an internal medicine and pediatrics trained physician, I do really appreciate caring for patients across the continuum of age um, and recognizing, uh, particularly within that cohort, the genetic contribution of obesity and how this is transmissible, both in a genetic and epigenetic fashion. So for many patients taking care of three and even four generations, um, that's the, the clinical side. And that side also, I oversee the efforts um, for education for the Harvard Medical students surrounding obesity. Um, so many of them will rotate with me here at Mass General if they're on their um, clinical clerkship, particularly in internal medicine, and want subspecialty experience in obesity um, from that perspective. Continuing that education theme, I do give um, quite a few lectures in the order of about 150 a year, um, both here at Harvard Med, but also um, for organizations around the U.S. and around the world, um, typically on the topic of, of obesity and something surrounding that um, domain, but also on issues surrounding um, equity and inclusion. I serve as the director for equity for our endocrine division um, and also oversee all of the diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts for the 12 NORCs. And the NORCs are the Nutrition Obesity Research Centers funded by NIDDK. So I spent quite a bit of time in that administrative work. Um, In addition to that, I sit on the Midlife Women's Center here. um, So really focus some of my attention um, on women in the midlife, um, which I happen to be in. That's really the 40 to 60 year old age range where we start to see uh, hormonal shifts that really can contribute to issues like increased adiposity or obesity or fat distribution that's really centrally located um, following a male-like pattern, particularly with that menopausal transition. Um, I also conduct a lot of research. So I have funded studies currently. I'm investigating a variety of things, um, looking at policy issues surrounding obesity, but also um, pharmacotherapy and surgical interventions, along with issues surrounding weight bias and stigma. 
And I currently have over 55 active mentees that are working on all types of things um, here in the U.S. and around the world. So that's so, the day. So, Fatima, okay, I don't mean to <laughs> laugh, but I can't help but laugh, but because I am just feeling so under-accomplished. <laughs> and that's, I'm sure I forgot some really things. I think the clinical trials, the books, the authors, the, the, the many, many things. Okay, so, so we're going to talk a little bit about sort of like, you know, how you manage it all, which is there's got to be some secret in there, and I don't know if it's just coffee, but um, in terms of, you know, obesity medicine and the path to being a physician, maybe just a little bit of the bio sketch of how, how, what drew you to that particular area of medicine. You're so accomplished. You're the most cited, um, recognized expert in this field. And so what drew you to that particular specialty? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I really thought about obesity and the work that I was doing. I, I'm going to take you about 20 four years ago, which was when I was um, working on my master's in public health um, at Emory in Atlanta, which is where I was born and raised. And a lot of the projects that I was doing at the time um, in behavioral sciences and health education and health policy and management were surrounding looking at obesity within the Black community, particularly in Atlanta, which is where I grew up. Um, there were several projects that I was involved in at the time. One was called Healthy Body, Healthy Spirit, and it focused on overweight and obesity within the Black church community within Atlanta. There was another project called Go Girls, which focused on overweight and obesity and um, adolescent um, non-Hispanic Black girls in the U.S. And then another project specifically focused on WIC, so the Women, Infant, and Children's Program. And so during that time, you know, all of that work was very public health focused, um, a hyper focus on, I would say, nutrition, physical activity, um, not really getting into, I would say, the crude understanding of the complexity of the disease of obesity, but definitely my interests um, started then. But if you look back at the late 90s, there was not technically a fill in obesity medicine. So I definitely took a circuitous path to um, what is indeed my career now. Well, it, see, it seems like you sort of, um, you know, helped to form that yeah. area yeah. in terms of the work that you've done. Not, and, and, and I'm assuming, and maybe you can just tell us, uh, but, you know, I'm assuming that the work of health equity and obesity, there's some linkage there just based on where this originated for you. Oh, hands down, hands down. Um, one of the key issues that really like drew me to what now is the fill of obesity medicine is the disparities we see in, in obesity, particularly within communities of color. And I'm going to focus on the black community, which is the community that I'm from. And, and that wanting to understand what are the different reasons why we see this um, major disparity across the age spectrum um, with regards to overweight and obesity within the black community definitely was something that intrigued me and part of why I think I have such a passion for the work. Um, we know, for example, the two most common forms of bias in the U.S. are race bias followed closely by weight bias. And so when you have the intersection of race and weight bias, which is what individuals that are Black might, would experience that have obesity, um, I think that it just compounds not only health outcomes, but, you know, career trajectories, et cetera. And so um, definitely that was a huge factor and, you know, really kind of moving down this pathway into obesity medicine. Um, I do want to say that, you know, in 2013, when the American Medical Association actually acknowledged obesity as a chronic disease, um, I was the speaker that came in to speak to the House of Delegates before their pivotal vote. I didn't um, know that that's what I was, <laughs> the reason why I was being brought in. I knew that I was being brought in to speak about obesity as a disease, but I had no idea that there was a major vote 
that would occur on the floor of the house, um, which did shift, I think, the focus on really recognizing obesity for the disease it was. And I'm, I'm thankful to have been part of that history, um, to see that shift, to see the change in conversation about this disease, um, although I think we still have a very long way to go. Well, of course, and you know, in so many of the areas that uh, that you are focused and an advocate for, we have a long way to go. But your voice is an important one, and you are, you know, just in terms of who you are, you're known as being quite outspoken. So I'm curious as to, you know, at what point did you find your voice along the way? You know, your voice is impactful, and perhaps you didn't know it when you were speaking to the House of Delegates at the American Medical Association. But that's one of more than one um, moment in time where your voice was particularly meaningful, where did it come from? Did you learn it? Did it come from an incident? Did it come from just that's naturally who you are? I would say it's naturally who I am. I think if I had my parents here, I'm kind of laughing to myself because I think they would tell you I was giving speeches when I was two. Um, and there's probably <laughs> some truth to that. Actually, I, I don't, I would say that's, that's definitively true. Um, I think the, the way to really kind of reacquaint you with this just being naturally who I am, I had a wonderful ability to reconnect with my four-year-old teacher. Yes, I said four-year-old teacher um, about three or four years ago. Um, she'd seen my parents um, and said, hey, I'd love to talk to Fatima. You know, is there a way that we can, you know, touch bases? So they gave her, you know, my cell phone number. We talked on the phone, but this is my first, I'm in my forties now um, for those listening. And this is my first time talking to this, my four-year-old teacher since I was four. So I asked her, is this like strange for you? You know, you're talking to me. I'm obviously significantly older than four years old. Like, is it, am I like very different? Like, you know, how, how do you perceive this? You know, I get my parents' biased view of, you know, their daughter being amazing, right? Because I'm their child. Now she said, you know, Fatima, you, you are basically exactly like you were then. You just have more vocabulary words, but you exactly, <laughs> this was exactly you. And she went on to tell me a story about, um, I guess there was some type of spelling bee who I had no idea there was a four-year-old spelling bee, but I guess there was at my school. And, um, during the dress rehearsal, I came in like second place and I like, like flipped the lid and she was like, Fatima, calm down. This is the dress rehearsal. You still have an opportunity to, to actually win the spelling bee, which I supposedly did. I don't remember the spelling bee. I'm glad I won because I have no idea. <laughs> but I think it goes to show you kind of that competitive nature, that that um, natural born leader, which I think is just, you know, ingrained in like who I am. Um, and to see your four-year-old teacher kind of reinforce, you know, what my parents have always said that you assumed was just a very biased view, I think really supports that. So in terms of that sort of, you know, starting at four years old and probably earlier, very, very driven. If I look at your biography, I mean, you are um, nine degrees, I think is what I'm, <laughs> I'm counting and you're probably working on some others. So clearly being driven is um, part of who you are and, and it's always been there. How does the energy keep going? Because you are very, quite passionate about both the field you're in, but in terms of the activities that you do, how do you keep keep that going, um, just, you know, given the volume, quite frankly, of things that you are involved in? Yeah, you know, I, it's very interesting, Lori. I, I have a strong faith base. My, my earliest memory in life is my christening. I was five months of age, and most people are like, there's no way you remember that, but I remember it very clearly. Um, and I think about what my drive comes from. I really do think it comes from my faith and what I'm being really kind of told internally to, to do in, in the world. And um, I 
live by this mantra of Dr. Benjamin Elijah Mays, who was an orator and one of the um, teachers for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And this is the phrase that I live by, strive to do whatever you're doing so well that no person dead and no person yet to be born could do it any better. So if I'm going to go down a pathway of doing work, a work that I feel like I'm being driven to do, that's what I'm aiming to do. And if that, when that no longer, that passion for whatever it might be is no longer there, then I know my time with whatever that endeavor is, is done. And that's how I've really governed my life. Um, and so you may cycle out of things. It's not saying that that's not something great for someone else, but at that moment, that's not what I'm being driven to do. And I, if I'm not being driven to do it, then it feels um, laborious. The, the work feels um, inundating. But if, it, if it's something I enjoy doing, I can do 20 of those things. And if there's one thing I don't enjoy doing, I know that that one thing will fill more than the 20 things that I really enjoy. So that's when it's time to separate myself from that work. Um, I don't know if that gives you know people a perspective or understanding of how I'm able to kind of burn on all cylinders. But those those things that are that I'm you know, using to propel me or things that are really part of whatever my passion, my desires, my, um, you know, that's fueling me, you know, from day to day. Well, passion and energy are, are clearly part of, you know, who you are, and it seems to be at a, you know, breakneck pace at all times. And so, and many people are oriented that way. And there is, of course, no no way you haven't hit, you know, various obstacles, roadblocks, running into a brick wall at times. So when that has happened, how do you continue to recharge and break through other than because there, there are many times where you've hit those where you haven't walked away, you've had to deal with whether it's a moment or an issue. So how, how does that sort of materialize for you? Yeah, so basically, how do I work through it? How do I, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, I use different strategies. So, you know, we've talked about my faith. I'm going to throw in the other, the other F words, which happen to be, you know, just like the name Fatima, um, that really kind of, um, I think, support me. So my family is um, highly supportive of me and they have seen me, you know, hit those brick walls and, and the brick walls are often much more frequent than people can see because when they look at like my 160 page CV or something like that, it appears as if, you know, I accomplished everything I set out to do, but there's for that 160 pages that you see, there's probably another 400 pages of things that have, you know, things that I have not achieved or um, things that didn't pan out for me. And so, you know, I really draw upon my family to, help me get through those times um, where I feel like, you know, I really need some support. So that faith family, and let's go to my other F word that I love, which is fitness. Um, so, you know, my anger, which can often come out or whatever it might be, I, I solve that in a very um, healthy way. I happen to be a huge kickboxing enthusiast uh, along with a fitness enthusiast, just really across the board. And so um, we're talking about faith, family, fitness, right? These are, you know, part of my F words um, that really um, just allow me to kind of persevere. So there have been people that maybe I wasn't um, congruent with that, that may have gotten beat up in kickboxing. They just don't know it because I was doing it in my living room. But um, those are things that, you know, kind of help me push through um, and, you know, channel that energy into things that overall ultimately, you know, make me a healthier individual, but um, allow me to not um, rest in those times of, of significant, um, uh, I would say, resistance, I think. 
Yep. Those are great mantra, faith, family, fitness. I love it. Okay. Let's talk about a bit about health equity. So you already talked about how, you know, you were oriented towards, or, or you were drawn to medicine and you were aware of disparities and in particular racial disparities and bias um, at a very early age. That's been important to you. And maybe just to sort of, you know, caveat some of the, um, you know, where, where you, where you tell us about your efforts there. I want to just sort of preface this with the first time I met you, which is when I was working at the American Medical Association as a senior executive there. And when I first met you, you were chairing one of the um, sections. Um, uh, and it, we, I was talking about physician data, and you wanted to ensure that I was quite educated in the long history of the American Medical Association. And it's not always doing right by you know, population, the public, um, in particular to race. And that was a moment in time where I have to say it was, um, it was impressive to me, just the way you spoke to me, it was just very clear that, you know, I needed to learn quite a bit more about um, the organization that I was working at. And it was important for you, I believe, to just make sure that I had that level of awareness. That to me just speaks to how you approach so much of your work educating others in important ways. And so I would say that just to, um, you know, ask you about the work that you do do in health equity. Are we making the progress that we need to? Are people at the level of awareness and education that they need to do effective work here? Yeah, I think this is really, a, you know, a great question. I, I, I love this question. It's one of my favorites um, because I really think that we aren't. <laughs> I think that, you know, after the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, particularly, we saw a shift in the conversation surrounding equity, particularly for racial and ethnic minority communities here in the U.S. Um, we saw a proliferation of people being named as chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officers and, and corporate America and academia um, and education and, you know, just really every sector. But, you know, there's something that I, you know, I want people to really recognize, you know, if we look at a lot of our DEI leaders, particularly those that hold chief titles and, you know, Fortune 500 companies, et cetera, I want you to look at their LinkedIn profile and look at how long they remain in those roles. On average, if you're looking at it, it's a year, year and a half before they transition from a Google to an Amazon and then from an Amazon over to uh, you know, another large company. And I'm just using those, those aren't particularly, I don't, it's not that those the companies, I just use those as um, kind of examples. But the reason why I think they transition is they come into the company really uh, enthusiastic about um, being able to make some major change, both for the employees and those interacting with the company. And then what they quickly realize is that, you know, while they have a chief title with the, you know, with the salary that goes along with that, they have minimal staff support, um, they have minimal ability to really um, make significant strides within the organization, because when you're looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion, we have to recognize that it has to be integral to the outputs of the company, not just like, oh, those people over there that are doing that work. And what I see in most situations is you have these groups of people that are going over and doing the work, most of the people from racial ethnic minority backgrounds. So basically they're supposed to go and solve racism that they didn't start. And then there's not really any strong um, support in terms of like how this is being integrated throughout not the culture of the outputs of the organization. And so I say all that to say that, you know, 
yes, there's some education that is that is there. Um, I think though, if you don't eat, live, breathe, being part of the disenfranchised groups, then you can just turn it off when you go home. As a black woman, I don't turn off my blackness when I go home or on vacation or whatever. It's part of what I live, eat and breathe, which means that my exposures are permeate throughout my entire life and interactions with the world. That means it's constantly at the forefront of my mind, but it isn't if you don't have to eat, live and breathe it. So until we can allow our organizations to eat, live and breathe it in the way that those of us that are from these backgrounds do, I don't think we'll see um, the level of change that's really needed to bring about equity. Um, I know that sounds dismal, but I'm just being honest in terms of what I've seen, um, you know, really being in the equity space for over 25 years and seeing, I would say, the significant lack of progress, even after this, you know, significant energy that went forward to really make this integral to organizations, um, you know, really in the aftermath of, math of George Floyd's um, death. Well, I think, you know, it's it's hard not to be uh, pessimistic um, at times. I think we're experiencing in this country now some of a um, backlash, you know, to a lot of the effort that's gone into the work of DEI. I mean, where you know, the woke culture is um, terms that are sort of uh, being thrown around quite a bit um, now. But so if you if you had a prediction or a desire of what could be done, and let's just say the next couple of years, what would it be? Where would would you like people to double down and what does that even mean? Yeah, I think I would have to, I'm gonna have to give an example for it to make sense, you know, so I'm gonna use, let's say academia, right? That's where I spend a lot of my time. So right now, if you're on the faculty of any medical school in the United States, you know, there are certain metrics that are utilized to determine whether or not you are worthy of promotion, right, to the next phase. They include a number of publications, number of lectures given, um, number of leadership roles that you may hold, et cetera, et cetera. These are the things that are universal. These are the things that are known. These are the things that you have to do, must do in order to move up the academic ladder in any um, institution, any discipline here in the US. Now, what is not integral or what's not required is for you to have any focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. There are those of us that do have that, um, but it's not required, which means if it's not required, then that means it must not be important. Like if they all of a sudden eliminated publications in peer-reviewed journals, then people will probably stop doing those because you know it just wouldn't make sense. It's not, it's not required. Um, in order for us to see this shift, this change, we have to have these requirements. Um, so there has to be integral. It can't be just that, you know, the black women and men or um, Latino women and men, or the, those that are native that are um, doing this work, which is typically who, who really carries the burden of this work um, are doing the work. It has to be that every single person is, um, this is part of what they are required to do to really move along the path. Otherwise, the optional nature of it will make it such that we won't see shifts. I, I wanted to use that as an, an example, just because I think it helps kind of capture how I think about this. Um, the, the requirements versus being optional, let us know what's considered important. Well, it also speaks to the, you know, this is more than just a moral imperative. Let's just make it a mainstream requirement that this needs to be part of everyone's responsibility. I really appreciate those, um, those comments. 
You know, Fatima, as we close out on inspiring women, I'd like, you know, two things. I'd love to hear your advice for others, but also um, who inspires you? Um, you are a very inspiring, committed voice for change, um, but I'd also like to just understand who you hold out that keeps you lifted um, beyond the, you know, obvious faith and family and fitness that you've already spoken to. Absolutely. So I love this. Um, so let's go with first who inspires me. Um, and I'm going to go with an historical figure. And that historical figure is going to be Harriet Tubman, which of course I've never met. I've never seen. I do happen to live in a city and work at a hospital that she actually was operated on here at Mass General. Um, but what I really appreciate about her and what I understand about her as a, as a nurse, as a, a leader, someone who decided that against all odds, she would move forward um, to bringing um, those that were enslaved to freedom was that she blazed a trail and she was going to continue to navigate this trail with or without help because that's what she felt like she needed to do. And she was going to persist and she was not going to allow anyone or any reason to get in her way. So I would say historically, it is, it is truly Harriet. Um, and I recognize that as a trailblazer, it often puts me in the fire. Um, and by the time I get through, I'm hoping those that are coming behind me don't face the backlash, don't face the stressors that I face in trying to knock over the barriers that they will hopefully just have a clean, clear pathway to navigate down. And I recognize that. I recognize it comes with um, a significant burden, but I feel like it's really the work I've been put here to do in, in, in different domains. So that's the historical figure that really um, pushes me forward. Laura, you had another question. I feel like- I Yeah, didn't... and just to close out on that is so terrific. And you know, your last words of advice for other perhaps much younger women than you um, looking for to for forge ahead in the way that you clearly have. I think the key thing is I want you to listen to yourself. Um, a lot of people try to find a prescriptive path, follow an individual, chart themselves after that person. Every person's path is unique and individual to them. No one in this world is, is created to do the exact same work. And so don't follow someone else's path. Listen internally and figure out what is your path? What is your um, contribution to society? make that your work, make it work that, um, that you eat, live and breathe. Like that's a, that's a key thing that I I've mentioned during the, the course of this conversation, but don't, you know, it's not just about, about following. I think you can find different traits from different individuals that you might see or how they navigate certain, um, parts of their work and maybe come up with your own recipe of what you need to be your best self. And so I would say, just recognize your individuality recognize that we're all put here to do different work, utilize things that you may have learned to find out what works for you and be your best self. Well, that is such great advice. And I will say that I'm inspired just speaking with you. This has been an excellent, inspiring women conversation. We have been speaking with Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford and Fatima, thank you so much. It has been an absolute delight to be here. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.